Welcome, you lovelies, to your weekly dose of tales. I'm almost back to full strength from being ill off and on for the past month, and my work colleagues and friends have been experiencing this same thing. The cold and flu season is upon us in Australia, and it's not holding back. Now, I won't keep you waiting, and I won't ruin the story with the synopsis this time around, but I will say this. I'm going to try something different, and if you have any feedback, I welcome it. I thought I'd add a layer of quiet ambience of rain in the background audio just to shake things up a little bit. Let me know what you think. Love it? Hate it? I'm all ears. And feel free to email me at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. Otherwise, sit back and listen to two tales from short stories masterpieces written in 1913. The first tale is The Old Bell Ringer, and the second tale is Four Days Wounded. Enjoy. The Old Bell Ringer by Vladimir Korolenko It had grown dark. The tiny village, resting on the ledge of a remote stream in a pine forest, had become enveloped in that twilight which is peculiar to starry spring nights. When the thin mist rising from the earth deepens the shadows of the woods and fills the open spaces with a silvery blue vapour. How still was everything, and pensive, and sad. The village was quietly dreaming. The dark outlines of the wretched huts were but vaguely visible. Here and there lights were a glimmer. Now and then you could hear a gate creak. A dog's bark would start suddenly and die away. Occasionally, out of the dark woods, the figure of a pedestrian would emerge, or that of a horseman, or a cart would pass by with a jolting noise. These were the inhabitants of lone forest settlements, gathering to their church to greet the great spring holiday. The church stood on a little hill, in the very middle of the village. Its windows were all alight, its belfry, an old, tall, and dark structure pierced the blue sky. The steps of the staircase creaked as the old bell ringer ascended the belfry, and soon his little lantern looked like a star suddenly sprung into space. It was hard for the old man to mount the steep staircase. His old legs had already served their time, and his eyesight had grown dim. It was time an old man had rest, but God seemed slow in sending deliverance. The old bell-ringer had buried sons and grandsons. He had escorted both young and old to their final resting place, but he himself was still alive. It was hard. So many times he had greeted Easter that he had lost count. He could not even remember how many times he had awaited here his last hour, and now once more God had willed that he should be here. Having reached the top, he leaned his elbow on the railing. Below, around the church, he could discern the wretchedly kept graves of the village burial place. As if to protect, old crosses stood over them with outstretched arms. Here and there a young birch tree inclined over them its branches, and as yet leafless. The aromatic odour of young buds ascended from below towards Mikheyich, and with it came a feeling of the sad tranquillity of eternal sleep. And what would he be doing a year hence? Would he once more climb this height, under this bronze bell, to arouse with a resounding peal the lightly slumbering night? Or would he be resting, down there, in some dark corner of the graveyard, under a cross? God knows. He was ready. But in the meantime, the Lord called him once more to greet the holiday. All glory be to God, whispered his lips, accustomed to the old formula. Mikheyich raised his eyes towards the sky, dense with millions of stars, and crossed himself. Mikheyich! Mikheyich! A trembling voice, also that of an old man, suddenly called him from below. The aged sexton looked up towards the belfry. 
even fixed his palm over his blinking, tear-wet eyes, and still could not see. Mikech, what do you want? I am here, answered the bell ringer, leaning out from the belfry. Can't you see me? No, I can't see you. Isn't it time to strike? What do you think? Both of them glanced at the stars. Thousands of god lights twinkled on high. The fiery wagoneer was already far above the horizon. Mikhaich pondered. No, not yet. Wait just a little longer. I know when to. He knew. He had no need of a timepiece. God's stars always told him when the time came. The earth and the sky, the white cloud floating silently across the expanse of blue, the indistinct murmur of dark pines below, and the rippling of the stream concealed by the dark. All were familiar to him, near to him. Not in vain had he spent his life here. For the moment his entire long past unrolled before him, he recalled how he ascended the belfry with his father for the first time. Good Lord, how long ago it was, and what a short time it seemed. He saw himself once more a fair-haired lad. His eyes were kindled, the wind. Not the sort that raises the dust off the street, but rather a more rare wind, flapping as it were, its noiseless wings high above the earth, played with his hair. There below, so far, so far away, he saw some sort of little people, and the houses of the village also seemed small, and the forest receded into the distance, and the round-shaped meadow upon which stood the village seemed immense, almost boundless. Well, here it is, all here, smiled the old man, glancing at the small spot of earth. So life, too, is like that, he reflected. When one is young, one sees neither its end nor its edge. And yet here it was, as if in the palm of one's hand, from the very beginning to the very grave he had just been contemplating in the corner of the burial ground. What of that? Glory be to the Lord. It was time for rest. It was a hard road, and he had traversed it an honest man, and the damp earth was his mother. Soon, if only soon. Well, the time had come. Mikhaich glanced once more at the stars, removed his cap, crossed himself, and began to gather up the ropes of the bells. A few more moments, and the nocturnal air trembled from the resounding stroke. Another, a third, a fourth, one after the other, filling the lightly slumbering pre-festal night with an outpouring of powerful, lingering, resonant, singing tones. The bell grew silent. The service in church had begun. It was the habit of Mikich in former years to go down and to stop in a corner near the door in order to pray and listen to the chanting. This time, however, he remained in the tower. It was difficult for him. Aside from that, he felt intensely fatigued. He sat down on a little bench, and as he listened to the dying tones of the agitated bronze, he grew deeply pensive. What were his thoughts? He himself could hardly have answered the question. The bell tower was but dimly lighted by his lantern. The still vibrating bells were lost in the darkness. Faint murmuring of the chant reached him occasionally from below, and the nocturnal wind stirred the ropes fastened to the iron hearts of the bells. The old fellow let fall his grey hand upon his breast. His mind was in a state of delirious fancy. Now they are singing a hymn, he thought and he imagined himself among the others in church. He heard an outpouring of children's voices in a choir. He saw the figure of the long-since-departed priest, Nahum, exhorting the congregation to prayer. He saw hundreds of peasants' heads 
like ripe corn before the wind, bend low and stand erect again. The peasants were crossing themselves. Familiar faces, all of them, and all faces of the dead. Here was the stern face of his father. Here, beside his father, his older brother, crossing himself and sighing. And he himself stood here, in the bloom of health and strength and full of the unconscious yearning for happiness and the joy of life. Where, oh, where was this happiness? The old man's mind flared up for a moment like a dying flame. Flashing with a bright, quick movement and illuminating for the moment all the passages of his past life. Hard work, sorrow, care. Oh, where was this happiness? A hard fate can bring furrows to a young face, give a stoop to a strong back, and cause one to sigh like an older man. There, on the left, among the women of the village, humbly inclining her head, stood his sweetheart, a good woman, hers by the kingdom of God. Hers by the kingdom of God. How much had she not suffered? That fine soul. Constant need and labor and the inevitable womanly sorrow will cause a handsome woman to wither. Her eyes will lose their sparkle and the expression of perpetual, dull like fright before each unawaited blow of life will change the most superbly beautiful creature. Yes. And where was her happiness? One son remained to them, their one hope and joy, and he fell a victim to human weakness. And he too was here, his rich enemy bending low time and again, seeking to pray away the bitter tears of orphans he had wronged. Repeatedly he was performing upon himself the sign of the cross, falling on his knees and touching the ground with his forehead. And Mikhaich's heart boiled over within him. While the dark faces of the icons looked down severely from their walls upon human sorrow and human inequity, all that was past, all that behind him, now the entire world seemed to him like a dark bell tower where the wind blew in the dusk, stirring the bell ropes. Let the Lord judge you, whispered the old man, shaking his grey head while tears silently ran down his cheek. Mikhaich! Mikhaich! You haven't fallen asleep! Someone shouted up to him from below. <gasps> Returned the old man and quickly jumped to his feet. Lord, have I in truth fallen asleep? That never happened before. With an accustomed hand, Mikhaich quickly caught the ropes. Below him moved the peasant throng, a veritable anthill. The holy banners, a glimmer with gold brocade, fluttered in the wind. The procession made a circuit of the church, and presently, Mikhaich heard the joyous cry, Christ has risen from the dead. Come, like a mighty wave, the cry whelmed the old man's heart, and it seemed to Mikhaich that brighter flared the light of the waxen candles and that stronger grew the agitation of the people. The holy banners seemed to become more alive, and the suddenly awakened wind caught up the waves of sound, and with broad sweeps lifted them high, where they became one with the loud triumphant music of the bell. Never before had old Mikhaich rung so well. It was as if the old man's brimming over heart had passed into the inanimate bronze, and it seemed as if the reverberations at the same time sang and throbbed, laughed and wept, and, uniting in a rare harmony, rose higher and higher unto the starry sky. The stars themselves seemed to him to take on a new sparkle, to burst into flame, while the sounds trembled and flowed and again came down to earth with a loving embrace. A powerful bass loudly proclaimed, Christ has risen, 
while two tenor voices constantly a-tremble from the repeated blows of the iron harps mingled with the bass joyously and resonantly. Christ has risen. And again, two most slender soprano voices, seemingly in haste, not to be left behind, stole in among the more powerful ones, little children, as it were, and sang in emulation, Christ has risen. The entire belfry seemed to tremble and to shake, and the wind blowing in the face of the bell-ringer appeared to flap its mighty wings, and to repeat, Christ has risen. The old heart forgot about life, full of cares and wrongs. The old bell-ringer forgot that life for him had become a thing shut up in a melancholy and crowded tower. He forgot that he was alone in the world, like an old stump, weather-beaten and broken. He intercepted these singing and weeping sounds, fleeting higher towards the skies and falling again to the poor earth. And it seemed to him that he was surrounded by his sons and his grandsons, that these joyous voices of old and young had flowed together into one great chorus, and that they sang to him of happiness and joyousness which he had not tasted in his life. And the old man continued to tug at the ropes while tears ran down his face, and his heart beat tremulously with the illusion of happiness. And below the people were listening and saying to each other that never had old Mikayet rung so marvellously. Then all of a sudden, the large bell trembled violently and grew silent. The smaller ones, as if confused, rang an unfinished tone and then too stopped, as if to drink in the prolonged, sadly droning note which trembled and flowed and wept, gradually dying away in the air. The old bell-ringer fell back exhausted on the bench, and his last two tears trickled silently down his pale face. Quick! Send a substitute! The old bell-ringer has rung his last stroke! And such is life, and that was his end. And so ends The Old Bell Ringer by Vladimir Korolenko. Four Days by Wizzerwald Garshin I remember how we ran through the wood, how the bullets whizzed past us, how the twigs that were hit by them snapped and fell, how we scrambled through the bushes. The firing grew heavier. Looking through to the outer edge, I could see little flashes of red here and there. Sidorov, a young private of Company 1. How did he come to fall into our line? Was the thought that flashed through my head. Suddenly sat down on the ground and silently looked at me with open, terrified eyes. A stream of blood trickled from his mouth. Yes, that too I remember well. I also remember how when almost on the edge of the wood I first saw him in the thick bushes... He was an enormous, corpulent Turk, but I ran straight at him, although I am weak and small. Something burst, something huge seemed to fly past me. There was a ringing in my ears. He has shot me, was my first thought, but he, with a cry of terror, pressed his back against the dense foliage. He could have gone around it without difficulty, but... In his fright, he lost his presence of mind completely, and he tried to crawl through the prickly bushes. With a blow, I knocked the gun out of his hand. I followed this by a thrust with my bayonet. There was an outcry, a roar, that died into a moan. I ran on farther. Our soldiers cried, Hurrah! Fell low and discharged their guns. I Remember that I too fired several times after we had left the wood and were in the field. Suddenly the cry of hurrah grew louder, and we all in a body moved forward. That is not we, but my comrades. I remained behind. That seemed strange to me. Still stranger was the fact that suddenly everything vanished. All the cries and firing died away. 
I could hear nothing, but saw only something blue, which I concluded was the sky. Afterwards, that too passed out of my senses. Never before have I found myself in such a strange situation. I am lying, it seems, on my stomach, and I see before me only a small clod of earth, a few blades of grass, an ant climbing down one of these, head downwards, bits of litter from last year's grass. That is my whole world. And I can see with only one eye, because the other is obstructed by some hard substance, perhaps a twig upon which my head rests. I feel terribly uncomfortable, and I wish to stir. It is incomprehensible to me why I cannot. So the time passes, I hear the noise of the grasshoppers and the humming of bees. Nothing more. At last I make an effort, and, extracting my right arm from under me, I press both my hands against the earth and try to rise to my knees. Something sharp and rapid, like lightning, shoots across my entire body, from the knees to my chest and head, and I collapse to the ground again. Darkness, and again, nothingness. I am awake once more. Why do I see stars, which shine so brightly in the dark blue Bulgarian sky? Am I in my tent? Why have I crawled out of it? I make a movement and feel an agonizing pain in my legs. Yes, I have been wounded in battle. Dangerously or not. <sighs> I can't tell. I catch hold of my legs. There is where the pain is, and both the right and the left legs are covered with clotted blood. When I touch them with my hands, the pain becomes even more intense. It is like a protracted toothache gnawing at the very soul. There is a ringing in the ears, an oppressiveness in the head. I vaguely understand that I have been wounded in both legs, but it is all incomprehensible. Why have I not been picked up? Have the Turks really beaten us? I try to recall what has happened to me. At the beginning things seem a bit confused, but they gradually become clearer, and I come to the conclusion that we have not been beaten and simply because I fell on the little field on top of the slope. In any case, how it all happened is difficult for me to remember, but I do recall how they all rushed forward, and that I alone could not run, and that only something blue remained before my eyes. Somewhat earlier, our captain pointed toward this hillock. Boys, we'll get there, he cried in his sonorous voice, and we got there. It is clear we have not been beaten. Why, then, was I not picked up? This is such an open spot and everything is visible. There must be others lying here. The shots came so thick. I must turn my head to look. It is easier to do this now because when I first came to consciousness and I saw the grass and the ant crawling head downwards, I tried to rise and I fell back not into my former position, but turned over on my spine. That explains why I see the stars. I try to rise to a sitting position. This is very difficult, when both legs are wounded. After several attempts, I began to despair. At last, however, with tears in my eyes, forced out by the pain, I manage it. Overhead, I see a spot of dark blue sky in which are visible a large star and a number of small ones, and around me something dark and tall. The bushes. I am in the bushes, and that is why I have not been found. I feel a stirring at the roots of my hair. How, then, did I get into the bushes? If I were shot in the open field, it is likely that I crawled here when I was wounded, and the pain obliterated the memory of it. It is singular, however, that I should not be able to move now, and that I had been able to drag myself then towards these bushes. It is possible that I got my second wound while lying here, which may explain the matter. I now see pale rose stains around me. The large star has lost its brilliancy. Some of the small ones have disappeared. 
It is because the moon has begun to rise. How good it must be at home. I hear strange sounds somewhere, as if someone was moaning. Yes, it is a moan. Is it another unfortunate, lying near me, forgotten like myself with broken legs, or with a bullet in his stomach? No, the moans sound so near, and yet it seems there is no one here. Oh God, but it is. Myself. Low, piteous moans. Am I actually in such agony? I must be. Only I don't understand this pain, because there is a fog in my head that weighs me down like lead. It is better that I should lie down again and go to sleep, and sleep and sleep. Shall I ever wake again? It does not really matter. At that instant, that I am gathering strength to lie down, a broad, pale strip of moonlight strikes the spot where I am sitting, revealing something dark and large lying only a few feet away. Here and there upon it, little gleams are visible in the moonlight. Is it buttons or bullets? Is it a corpse or is it someone wounded? Or is it someone wounded? Well, I will lie down. No, it is impossible. Our soldiers have not departed. They are here. They have beaten the Turks and we have remained here. Why do I not hear voices and the crackle of bonfires? I must be too weak to hear. They are surely here. Oh. Oh. Wild, incoherent, and hoarse cries burst from my bosom, and they receive no answer. Loudly they scatter in the nocturnal air. Everything else is silent. Only the crickets chirrup on ceaselessly as before. The round moon looks compassionately down on me. If he were only wounded, my cries surely would have roused him. It is a corpse. Is it one of us or a Turk? Oh God, as if it really mattered. And I feel sleep descending upon my inflamed eyes. I am lying with closed eyes, though I have been awake for some time. I do not wish to open my eyes because I feel through this shut eyelid is the blade of the sun. If I open them, they will begin to smart. Perhaps I had better not even stir. It was yesterday, yes, it must have been yesterday that I was wounded. A day has now passed and other days will pass and I shall die. It does not matter. It is better not to stir. I will keep my body motionless. If I could only stop the working of the brain, nothing will stop that. Thoughts, memories, crowd upon me. In any case, it will not be for long. The end must come soon. The newspapers will publish just a few lines to say that our losses have been insignificant. So many have been wounded. Among those killed is Ivanov, a private in the volunteer ranks. No. Even my name will not be mentioned. They will simply say one killed, one soldier in the ranks like some little dog. The entire picture now comes to mind. It happened long ago, in fact. Everything. All my life. That life. Before I lay here with wounded legs seems to have been such a long time ago. I remember strolling along the street, seeing a crowd of people. I stopped. The crowd stood and silently looked upon something white, bloody, piteously whining. It was a handsome little dog, which had been run over by a tramcar. It was dying, as I am now. A house porter made his way through the crowd, picked the dog up by the collar, and carried it away. The crowd dispersed. Will someone carry me away? No. You lie here and die. But how good it is to live upon that particular day when the little dog met misfortune. I was happy. I was walking along in a kind of intoxication and there was good cause. Oh, oh my memories. Don't torture me. Leave me. My past was happiness. My present is agony. 
If only my sufferings also remained, and my memories ceased to torture me, for they compel comparisons. Ah, longings, longings, you are wounded, worse. It is becoming hot. The sun is scorching me. I open my eyes, see the same bushes, the same sky, only in the light of day. And here, too, is my neighbour. Yes, it is the Turk. His body. What a huge fellow. I recognise him. It is the very same one. Before my eyes lies a man I have killed. Why have I killed him? He lies here dead, bloodstained. What fate brought him here? Who is he? Perhaps, like myself, he has an older mother. Long will she sit evenings at the door of her wretched hut, looking ever towards the north. Is he coming home? He, her beloved son, her protector and provider. And I? Yes, I also. I would even change places with him. How happy he is. He hears nothing. Neither does he feel pain from wounds, nor terrible longing, nor thirst. The bayonet entered his very heart. There is a large black hole in his uniform, and blood all around it. That is my word. I did not wish to do it. I did not wish to harm anyone when I volunteer. The thought that I too should have to kill somehow escaped me. I only imagined how I would expose my own breast to bullets, and I did expose it. Well, and what has it come to? Fool! This unfortunate fella in Egyptian uniform, he is even less to blame than you are. Before he and others were packed like herrings in a barrel, into a steamer and brought to Constantinople, he had not even heard of Russia or of Bulgaria. He was commanded to go, and he went. Had he refused to go, he would have been beaten with sticks, and perhaps some pasha or other would have fired a bullet into him. It was a long, difficult march for me from Strambul to Rostak. We attacked. He defended himself. Seeing, however, that we were a fearless people and that, unafraid of his English carbine, we rushed forward and still moved forward. He was seized with terror. Just as he was trying to get away, some sort of little man, whom he could have killed with one blow of his dark fist, ran forward and plunged a bayonet into his heart. Of what had he been guilty? And of what am I guilty, even though I have killed him? Of what am I guilty? Why am I tortured by thirst? Thirst! Who knows the meaning of this word? Even during the days when we marched through Romania, fifty versts at a stretch, through unbearable heat, I did not feel what I feel now, if only someone came along this way. Oh, God! But there must be water in that big flask of his. Only try to reach it. Come what may, I will get it. I began to crawl. I dragged my legs slowly. My exhausted arms barely stir the passive body from its place. The spot is hardly more than fifteen feet away, but it seems like ten versts. Nevertheless, I must crawl on. My throat is aflame with a terrible fire, and to be sure, without water, I could die the more quickly. All the same, perhaps. And so I crawl. My legs drag on the ground, and every movement calls forth more excruciating pain. I cry out again and again, with tears in my eyes, and still I crawl on. At last, the flask in my hand, there's water in it, and quite a deal. It seems more than half full. Ah, it will last me some time, until I die. It is you, my victim, who will save me. I began to undo the flask, propping myself up on one elbow, and suddenly losing my balance. I fall downward across the breast of my deliverer. Decay having set in, a strong stench comes from his body. I have slacked my thirst. The water is warm but not spoilt, and there is a great deal of it. I can live a few more days. I remember having read somewhere that one could exist without food for over a week. 
provided one had water. Yes, and I recall also the story of the man who committed suicide by starvation, but who lived a long time because he drank water. Well, and what's to be the end of it? And if I do live five or six days longer, what of that? Our troops have gone. The Bulgarians have dispersed. I am far from a road. Death? There is no way out of it. I have but prolonged my three-day agony with a seven-day one. Perhaps I had better end it all. At my neighbor's side lies his gun. An excellent English mechanism. I have only to stretch out my hand. Then, one little moment, and an end. Or, there is quite a lot of cartridges here, too. He hadn't had the time to dispose of them all. Shall I end it all, or wait? Wait for what? Deliverance? Death? Or shall I wait until the Turks come here and tear the skin from my wounded legs? For better that I should put into it myself. No. There is no need to lose courage. I will struggle to the end, to my last resort. There is still hope of being found. It is possible. My bones are not affected. And I may return to health. I shall again see my native land, my mother, and Marsha. Oh Lord, save them from knowing the whole truth. I let them think I was killed outright. What if they should learn that I have suffered slow or torturous blows for two, three, or four days? My head is in a whirl. My journey to my neighbor has completely exhausted me. What a terrible stench. He has grown black. And what will he be like tomorrow or the day after? And now I'm lying here only because I haven't sufficient strength to drag myself away. I will rest a while and will then crawl back to my old space. And besides, the breeze blows from that direction and will drive the smell away. I am lying now in complete exhaustion. The sun is scorching my face and hands. There is nothing to cover oneself with. If only night would come. I think this will be the second night. My thoughts wander, and I am losing consciousness. I must have slept a long time, because when I awoke it was already night. As before, the wounds ache, and my neighbor lies beside me, the same huge motionless figure. I cannot help thinking of him. Have I really left behind me all that is pleasant and dear to me? and marched here at the speed of four verses an hour, hungered, frozen, suffered from the heart, only to undergo this final torture. For no other reason than that this unfortunate should cease to live, and have I really accomplished anything useful for my country except this murder? This is murder, and I am a murderer. When I first got the idea into my head to go and fight, Mother and Marsha, do not try to dissuade me, although they both wept much. Blinded by my idea, I did not understand those tears. Only now I understand what I have done to those so near to me. Why recall all this? There is no returning to the path. And what a singular attitude my acquaintances assumed towards my action. What a madman. He is meddling without knowing why. How could they say that? How could they reconcile their words with their ideas of heroism, love of mother country, and other such things? Surely I earn their admiration for living up to these virtues, yet I am a madman. Presently, I am on my way to Kishinev. Presently, I am on my way to Kishinev. I am supplied with a knapsack and all the other military accoutrements. I go with thousands of others, among them a few like myself, are volunteers. The rest would have preferred to remain at home, if they were permitted. Nevertheless, they go along just like we, conscious ones, march thousands of versts, and fight as well as ourselves, or even better. They fulfilled their obligations, notwithstanding the fact that they would on the instant drop everything and go home if permission were given them. A fresh early morning breeze has begun to blow. There is a stirring among the bushes. I can hear the flutter of a bird's wings. The stars are no longer visible. The dark blue sky has turned grey, and stretching across it are gentle, fleecing cloudlets. 
a grey mist is rising from the earth. It is the beginning of the third day of my, what can I call it, life? Agony? The third day. How many more are left to me? At any rate, only a few. I have grown terribly weak, and I fear that I am unable to move away from the corpse. Only a little while longer, and I will stretch out by this side, and we shall not be unpleasant to each other. I must have a drink. I will drink three times a day, in the morning, at noon, and in the evening. The sun has risen, its enormous disk broken and intersected by the dark branches of the bushes, its red like blood. It looks as if it will not be a hot day. My neighbour, what will become of you? Even now you are quite terrible. Yes, he is terrible. His hair had begun to fall out. His skin, dark by nature, had grown a pale yellow. His bloated face has become so tightly stretched that the skin burst just behind one ear. The worms have begun to swarm there. The lower limbs, encased in gaiters, have swollen, and huge blisters have showed themselves from between the hooks of the gaiters. What will the sun make of him today? It is unendurable to be so near him. I must get away, at all costs. Can I do it? I am still able to lift my hand, open the flask, and drink, but to move my passive, cumbersome body is quite another matter. Still, I will make an effort, even if it should take me an hour to move a few inches. The entire morning passes in this attempt to shift. The pain is intense, but what does it matter? I no longer remember. I cannot imagine to myself the perception of a normal man. I have gotten used to the pain. I have managed to shift about fifteen feet, and am now in my old place. Not for long, however, have I enjoyed the fresh breeze. As far as it can be fresh with a rotting corpse only a few steps away. The breeze, too, has shifted and has brought the stench upon me anew to the point of nausea. The empty stomach contracts painfully and convulsively. All the internals groan, but the ill-smelling, infected air continues to pour upon me. I weep in my desperation. Broken in body and spirit, and half insane, I was beginning to lose consciousness. Suddenly, or is it only a delusion of a distressed imagination? Yes, I think I hear voices, the clatter of horses' hooves, and human voices. I almost came near shouting, but restrained myself. Suppose they should be Turks. They, of course, as if I already hadn't suffered enough, will subject me to terrible torture, such as makes your hair stand on end just to read about it in the newspapers. They'll peel my skin off, and they'll apply a fire to my wounded leg. Or they might invent some new torture. Is it not better to end my life at their hands than die here? Who can tell? They may be my countrymen. Oh, my cursed bushes. Why have you fenced yourselves so thickly around me? There is no opening except one aperture in the foliage that opens like a window upon a hollow visible in the distance. There, I think, is a brook from which we drank before the battle. I can see, too the huge flat stone across the stream, but there too serve as a bridge. They will surely cross it. The voices are dying away. I cannot make out the language they speak. My hearing, too, has grown weak. Oh, Lord! What if they are my countrymen? I will shout. They will hear me even from the brook. That is better than falling into the hands of the Bashi Bazooks. What has become of them? I don't see them. I am being consumed with impatience. I no longer even notice the smell of the corpse, although it has not grown any less. Suddenly, a body of horsemen make their appearance across the ridge. Cossacks, blue uniforms, red stripes, lances, about fifty of them, and the four, upon a handsome horse, is an officer with a black beard. No sooner do the fifty horsemen cross the brook than he turns full face in his saddle and shouts, Trot to march! Stop! Stop! For God's sake, help! Help, brothers! But the stamping of sturdy horses, the clanging of many sabres, 
and the lusty shouting of Cossack throats are too much for my weak outcry, and I am not heard. Oh, curses. I am in complete exhaustion, I fall face to the ground and begin to weep. In my falling, I failed to notice that. In my falling, I failed to notice that I have upset the flask, and out of its mouth the water, my life, my deliverance, my respite from death, is oozing. I notice it only when there is no more than half a cup full left. The rest has been absorbed by the dry, thirsty air. It is simply agony to recall the stupor, which seized me after this terrible accident. I lay motionless, with half-closed eyes. The wind kept changing, and now fanned me with pure, clear air, and now sent the stench upon me anew. My neighbour has become unsightly beyond all description. Once I opened my eyes to glance at him, and I recoiled in horror. He no longer had any face. The flesh seemed to peel right off the bone. That horrible smile of bones, that eternal grin, seemed never so repulsive, never so awful, although it had been my lot to hold many a human skull in my hands before, in the medical classes. The skeleton in uniform with shining buttons caused me to shudder. This is war, I reflected, and here is its symbol. The sun is burning and scorching me as before. My hands and face have been smarting for some time. I drank up the remaining water. The thirst tortured me so intensely that in trying to take a single swallow I gulped down all. Fool that I was not to have called other Cossacks when they were so near. Even if they had been Turks, it would have been better than this. They would have tortured me an hour or two. But now there's no saying how long I am to lie here and suffer. My dear, dearest mother, if you only knew, you would tear your grey hair out and would knock your head against the wall. You would curse the world which invented war and its sorrows. It is well that you and Marsha will not hear of my sufferings. Farewell, mother. Farewell, my sweetheart, my love. But how sad and bitter I feel and there is something gnawing at the heart. Again, I am thinking of that little white dog. The porter did not pity it, but knocked its head against the wall and threw it into the garbage heap, and still it was alive and suffered a whole day. I am more unfortunate, because I have suffered already three days. Tomorrow will be the fourth day, then the fifth, the sixth. Death, where art thou? Come, come, take me. But death does not come, and I am lying in the blaze of this terrible sun, and there is not a drop of water to refresh in my inflamed throat. The corpse, too, is making me ill. Myriad of vermin are feeding in it. How they swarm. When he is eaten and there is nothing left except the bones and the uniform, then it will be my turn. I, too, shall share the same fate. The day passes and the night passes, no change. Again morning, no change. Another day will pass. The bushes are staring and rustling, as if they were talking amongst themselves. You will die. You will die. You will die. They whisper. You will not see. You will not see. You will not see. Answers the bushes on the other side. No. You will not see them here. I hear a loud voice quite near. I tremble and at once come to myself. I look up to find the good blue eyes of our Corporal Yekolev looking at me. Spades, he cries out. There are two more of them here, and one of them is theirs. There is no need for spades, no need to bury me. I'm alive, I wish to cry out, but only a feeble groan issues from my parched lips. Lord, but he is alive. Baron Ivanov, children, come this way. Our baron is alive, and bring the doctor quick. Presently I feel the pleasant contact in my mouth of water, whiskey, and of something else. Then everything disappears. The stretches of sways with the, the stretcher sways with a measured motion. This motion is soothing. Now I recall myself. Now everything lapses from my memory. The bandaged wounds no longer hurt. An, express, an inexpressible feeling of comfort 
has diffused itself through my entire body. Halt. L lower. Fresher hands to the stretches. Now get hold. Lift. March. The command is issued by Peter Ivanich, our sanitary officer, a tall, lean, and very kindly man. He is so tall that I turn my eyes in his direction and I can see his head, his peculiar long beard and his shoulders, although the stretcher is being carried on the shoulder of four big men. Peter. Ivanich. I whisper. What is it, dear fellow? Peter Ivanich leans towards me. Peter Ivanich, what did the doctor tell you? Will I die soon? What are you saying, Ivanov? Of course you will live. Your bones are whole. What a lucky fellow you are. Your bones are all right, and so are your arteries. But tell me, how did you manage to pull through these three and a half days? What did you eat? Nothing. And had you anything to drink? I took the Turk's flask. Peter, Ivanich, I cannot speak now. Later. Well, God be with you, dear fellow, and have your nap. Again, sleep. Forgetfulness. When I awake again, I am in a division hospital, surrounded by nurses and doctors. At my feet stands a man whom I recognize as a celebrated St. Petersburg professor. His hands are bloodstained. He is attending to me, and presently he turns to speak to me. He says, Well, the Lord has been good to you, young man. You will remain alive. We have deprived you of one leg, but that is a mere trifle. Can you talk? Yes, I said. Yes, I can talk. And I am telling him all that I have written here. Thank you for listening, you creative connoisseurs. A big shout out to my Hall of Famer, Majestic Maya, who has supported this show immensely over the years. Thank you so much. My legendary white tea warlord, Leza Bowazuka. You are a superstar and don't you ever forget it, mate. Your donations have gone straight into audio libraries for environmental sounds this time around, and today is an example of that audio in use. Thank you immensely. Did I mention you're a legend, mate? I know I did, and you certainly are a legend. And my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you all for your support. And if you guys and gals like what I do, consider joining my Patreon. It's super easy to Google, it's SFGT Patreon. And you can help me by donating a cup of tea's worth of dollar dues a month. And lastly, if you have a couple of seconds spare, visit my iTunes page to leave a review. Now write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine or the tingle that makes you smile from that perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling, like tea. It's divine. You took the time to listen to me and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends for the listen, and as always, till next we meet.